In Parashas Maseh, we have a long discussion about murders, a lengthy discussion about the Goyal Hadam, the blood avenger. We've discussed that previously. I want to focus on the judicial aspect of the process. The Torah discusses in many places in the Torah, including the, in the end of this discussion, the idea of based on executing murders. After discussing the laws of the Goyal Hadam, the blood avenger, the Er Meklat, the city of refuge, then the Torah tells you the basic halacha. Anyone who murders, anytime we have witnesses that testify to a murder, you have to execute the murderer. Not a not a single witness is not enough. You need two witnesses. You can't accept payments, and uh, a person can't redeem himself with kofar. You can't allow him to go to the Ermiklat. You can't allow him to get away. You have to execute him. The Torah talks about what, how an important thing it is. The Torah says that... The land shall not be atoned, shall not receive atonement for the blood that has been spilled in it, unless only with the blood of the murderer. And we know in many places the Torah talks about the capital punishment for murder. That's something that appears all over the Torah. And the truth is, the Torah has numerous crimes, numerous sins for which the penalty is death. The Ramam carefully lists 36 of them. Uh, most of them are probably not very common. About half of them or more are different kinds of sexual perversions, incest, and so on. The, the, the more common ones are, are certain classes of sexual activity, probably adultery, murder, and then there's a whole family of idolatry and certain types of paganism and so on. Though those three certain forms of idolatry and paganism, murder and maybe adultery are probably, and Chil Shabbos is the fourth, the fourth relatively common category, of uh, potentially relatively common category. Those are the 36, there are 36 crimes for which uh, the death penalty is prescribed by the Torah. In in practice, we see from many places in the Talmud that the two big ones were really murder and arayas and sexual impropriety. There are various passages in the Talmud, some halachic, some agadic, which indicate that in practice the, the death penalty was imposed for those two and perhaps in particular murder. Now, surprisingly, given the amount of space the Torah itself gives and the Talmud gives and Sanhedrin and Makos, despite the amount of space the Talmud gives to discussing the death penalty, trying to figure out exactly what the Torah's attitude uh, toward the death penalty is, is not nearly as easy as it looks. Is, was the death penalty assumed to be something that would be, the machinery of death was going to be something that was commonly uh, in motion? Was it supposed to be like uh, like abortion, you know, legal, safe, and rare? You know, it's, it's hard to it's, it's hard to know hard to know historically how often the death penalty was imposed. It's hard to know even the value of the Torah, how we're supposed to be applying capital punishment. We're going to go through some of the the primary sources, some of the classic sources, both in the in the Talmud and later sources in the medieval authorities discussing how, and some of the later sources too, how they viewed the death penalty, how often it was actually imposed, how integral a part of the Torah's notion of criminal jurisprudence is the, the death penalty. So one of the most famous discussions appears in Marcus, in the, in the first parak in Marcus. The, the Talmud discusses how frequently a Bastin would be expected to impose the death penalty. So just for background, we know there are several tiers of Din in Talmudic jurisprudence. There is the simple, the local Bastin of three people, the kind that even today still decide civil questions, between two you know, civil questions between two litigants. Then there is on the other extreme is the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin Gedola, the seventy-one member Sanhedrin that decides cases of national import and so on. 
In between is the Sanhedrin Kitana, Sanhedrin of 23. That's, uh, there were more than one. That was a regional based in, but you need a lot more than three to do capital jurisprudence. You need 23. That was the Sanhedrin Kitana. That was the body that ruled on capital cases. Sanhedrin Kitana could only exist while the Sanhedrin Gedola was in place, while they sat in the Lishkes Agazis. The Talmud relates that 40 years before the Korban, the Sanhedrin Gedola exiled itself. It left from the, left the Lishkes Agazis, and thereby, deliberately, apparently, that, that ended the application, uh, the formal application of capital punishment. The Sanhedrin Kitanas could no longer operate. But the Sanhedrin Kitanas could operate more or less independently as long as there was a Sanhedrin Gedola in place in Lishkes Agazis. So the Mishnah talks about how frequently, as, a ma- as an ideal matter, how frequently should the death penalty be imposed by these little Sanhedrins. So the Mishnah says, once a Shavua, Shavua does not mean a week, Shavua means a year, a seven-year period, that a Sanhedrin that kills once in seven years is considered chavlanis, sanguinary, too bloody, too, uh, too ruthless a bastin. The commentaries explain that they aren't doing their job. If they would be applying due process, if they would be giving each defendant his fair, a fair hearing, a proper hearing with all the protections and safeguards in place for capital cases, they would not be killing so many people. Miri says that they're not, they're not investigating the testimony thoroughly enough. The Rav says they should be Masun and Badin. They should always be Masun and Badin, even for a civil case, but certainly for a capital case. They should, they should go the extra mile to find any exculpatory argument or evidence for capital cases. That's the first opinion. Lesbian Azaria says once in 70 years. Discussion of the Talmud, whether he means once in 70 already crosses the line or once in 70 is the upper limit, but roughly speaking, once in 70 years is about the, the frequency with which the death penalty should be invoked. Now, this whole mission is, is a little problematic, obviously. Whenever I read the, the news these days, and I read about the problem of mass incarceration. So I'm not a criminologist, but I, I always wonder, shouldn't we be addressing the front end? Like, are we putting in jail people who need to be put in jail or not? Whether there's a lot of them or a little of them, I mean, the question is, are we putting in jail the right people for the right reasons or not? How does the simple fact that there are a lot of them, how does that transform the argument from they belong, they, they belong in jail they be, or they should be rehabilitated or treated with kindness? But the, the mission is making the same kind of argument, that forget about the question of addressing are your procedures good or not. If you're killing too many people, that itself is a problem. That itself is evidence that there's something wrong with your system, if whatever the different standards of too many are, but if the, if the rate of execution is too high, that itself tells us that something's wrong, whether with your investigative procedures, some kind of procedures. If you're killing too many people, mass, mass the, the, the threshold for mass is very low here, but if you're mass executing people, then that shows that your procedures are bad. Rabbi Taf and Rabbi Kiva, they go even further. They say, they take a very uh, modern view, they say, if we were on the Sanhedrin, they were too late, they were already post-Horbun and so on, they were too late to have been active in the Sanhedrin. Had we been on the Sanhedrin, we never would have killed anybody. Talmud's going to explain why. Rabbi Shimon Galil, though, he expresses the other side of the coin. He says, well, your attitude is problematic. He doesn't get into questions of procedure, he gets into questions of policy and of outcome. He says... You are going to be Marbin Shofchedamim be Israel. Your policy is going to remove any, any disincentive for murder, for criminality, and you are going to cause an increase in crime. The, the Mishnah, they clearly seem to assume, he clearly seems to assume that the actual imposition of capital punishment has a meaningful deterrent effect. Rashi says, Rashi says, you're going to be Marbin Shofchedamim because La Yirumi based, and nobody will have any fear. 
Uh, nobody will say crime doesn't pay because they know that capital punishment in practice is never implemented. Miri says that uh, it's a mitzvah, just as it's a mitzvah to save the innocent, it's a mitzvah to punish the guilty, levar hara. The Rav says if you don't punish the criminals, you're going to have too many criminals, marvin l'shpoktam, too much criminality. Ferris Israel, the Rotskin won't be afraid of, uh, of justice. Again, there are plenty of studies today by, by people trying to, criminologists trying to figure out, does capital punishment have a significant deterrent effect? Doesn't. I, I'm, not, I'm not well versed in the studies. I'm not, I'm not going to get into so much of the modern literature, whether it does or it doesn't. But the, the Mishnah seems to be saying, and as it was traditionally understood, was certainly, again, certainly in Talmudic law, where, where there's a dearth of other punishments other than capital punishment, certainly there would be, they didn't have long-term jail and so on, certainly there would, that not having sufficient punishment was going to cause a, uh, was going to cause a spike in crime if, if, if there was nothing to deter criminals. Now the Talmud, this is the Mishnah, this is all the Mishnah, the Talmud itself gets into the actual underlying procedural question. These are nice you know, policy outcomes, but what, what are the procedures that should be generating these, the, these results? What procedures are you using in, in court to ensure that the actual application of capital punishment stays so low? So the, the Talmud actually says, what do they do, especially Rekiv and Ritarfan, who had these, who had such extreme measures in place that they would never kill anybody, what would they have done? So the Talmud says they would ask the most, uh, they, they would barrage the witnesses with the most impossible to answer questions. They would ask him, are you sure that the victim was a, a shalim and not a trefa? If the person was a trefa, had some kind of defect that rendered him mortally ill, then even though you're still not allowed to kill him, but it, the, the, murder, no, the murder is no longer a capital crime, the, the murder is no longer liable for the death penalty. We ask the witnesses, are you sure that, did you do a physical on him, either before or an autopsy after the death? Are you sure he was in perfect health? They're generally not going to know that. They say, Yudches Trefus. Did you check all Yudches Trefus? Obviously not. They go even further. Ravashi says, even if he was Shalom, even if you looked at all his organs post-mortem and you saw they were all intact, maybe the place where the knife went in, the knife went right there, there was a hole, and now you can't tell because the knife is already there. So, Tosfus and other Rishonim actually point out that these are not real questions in the sense that the, the Torah does allow you to execute a defendant even though we'll never know the answer to these questions. The, the Gemara in Chulin, in the first parak, the Gemara has a famous discussion. We have a, we have a famous Talmudic rule of Holchanach Rov, that we follow majority in many different, uh, many different areas of halacha. We follow Rov. The Talmud says, how do you know that we follow Rov? The Talmud has a lengthy discussion providing various sources, debating them. One of the sources, which the Talmud seems to fail as a valid uh, source, it lets it stand, is from the law of execution for capital punishment, for, of execution of capital punishment for murder. Asked exactly these questions. How do you know he was not a trefa? We follow the rove. There's a presumption. He probably was not a trefa. Most people aren't trefas and so on. So the Talmud itself says that, we, all right, we're not going to know for sure that he was not a trefa, but it doesn't matter. We can execute him anyway. So Tosfos, the Meiri, and various commentaries say, that what they would do, Rebekah and Ritarfa, what they planned to do was, not all these questions were really uh, all that difficult to answer. If the Adim would keep their heads and say, we don't know, we didn't check, if they would just uh, be be well prepared and would answer those questions straightforwardly and just say, like every lawyer says, if you don't know, just say you don't know, they would have been fine. But the the barrage of questions would fluster them, it would cause them to contradict themselves, or uh, the perjury trap, so to speak, it would cause them to misstate things and contradict each other, and they they would find some means, they they would find some gotcha. This is what they talk about all the time today, If if a prosecutor tries hard enough and he pushes his witness into a corner, he pushes the defendant into a corner, he can get anything out of him. He can get any. He can uh, give me. Uh, 
it was uh, the, the Frenchman, I don't know how you pronounce his name, R-I-C-H-E-L-I-E-U. He would, he would say, give me six lines, shall you? Give me six lines in a man's handwriting and I'll find the means to hang him. I mean, you, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're motivated enough, you can, here, here the goal is not to hang the witnesses. On the contrary, the goal is to simply catch them in some kind of perjury and that would be enough to toss the case and save the defendant. There wasn't a good cause. But the point is, in a, uh, pro, in a you know, anti-death uh, death case, but basically... Everybody in Tom has a slightly different opinion that even if, even if they couldn't answer the question, it would be a problem. Difficult to understand why. But the point is, they said that, that, that by, the use of, uh, by the use of extremely aggressive, extremely aggressive legal maneuvering, they would find means to somehow manage to get the case tossed, and they would, they would always be able to find some kind of you know, crazy method to get the to get the, the defendant off, what we would call technicalities, basically. They would find people who are clearly guilty, but they would always manage to find some means of exonerating him. The Talmud talks about other examples, besides from murder. The Talmud talks about sexual crimes. What do you do there? The Talmud goes through, I'm not going to get into the kind of explicit discussion of the Talmud about what they have to see, what they don't have to see, what kind of excuses we can make. But basically, there also they would find, they would find uh, very kind of creative, very... Uh, the creative ways of saying maybe maybe you didn't see exactly what you thought you saw, and therefore again they were not going to kill him. Again, halacha we don't need to see that halacha. What witnesses would normally see is sufficient. The Talmud says, but they would find these means of attacking the edim, of uh, finding finding loopholes to get the witnesses off. Again, we don't actually pass it like this though. The halacha seems to follow the earlier view that this is going too far as a matter of policy. To the extent that we have any discretion over this, we have Rabbi Shimon Gamliel's view, who says you are going too far. You are being marba shofchedam Israel by by completely eviscerating the any deterrent property of capital punishment by reducing it to a purely academic construct. You are going to be completely defanging the halacha, and you are going to be marba shofchedam in Israel. Right, the Torah goes into more sense of justice. We. It's you know, it's the and if it's you know primary people, first then of course then it's So the first of course is that there is the criminology concept. So the notion of marbim is is really fraught with a certain degree of of problematics. The other thing is is when he's not going to be adjudicated to be a first-degree murderer, he still has to go to Ermiklat. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to so, words, some of that soon. Like, he's he walks out. Yeah, that's we'll, we'll, we'll discuss Ermiklat. We'll discuss some of that soon. Yeah, we'll keep that in mind. We'll get back to that soon. Yes. Would you review what, is, what number is required of the 23 for conviction? Yeah. And are there different degrees of first-degree, second-degree manslaughter? Yeah, good question. So what you need for a conviction, here in, in, in this area, in some areas, the halacha actually parallels somewhat uh, modern law, and this is an area where the standards are actually somewhat more relaxed. The, the basement size is 23. You need a, I guess the best way to describe it is a very weak supermajority. You need a majority. You don't need unanimity. There are no juries in halacha. The basin decides all questions of fact in halacha. There's no notion of a jury. You need a majority. It cannot be a simple majority. Simple majority is not sufficient. 12, 12, 12 for conviction and 11 for acquittal is not enough to convict. 
the, the defendant goes free. However, 13 to 10 is sufficient. You, with the way the Talmud defines it is, you need a majority that is at least two more than the majority for conviction that is at least two greater than the, than the group who are acquitting. So theoretically, 12, 10 would be enough, but the basin has 23, so, so you need, so you need uh, it's, an, it's an odd number, so you're going to need to have at least three more, on th- three more essentially convicting than, than acquitting. So you need 13 to 10. Now, there is a very strange halacha, a mysterious halacha, and this also is given a very modern flavor by Rav Sihar There is a halacha that says that a unanimous, based in a unanimous, uh, a unanimous vote for conviction results in the defendant being acquitted. Very paradoxical-sounding rule. Why is that? Talmud doesn't give any kind of explanation for why this should be. It darshan the pasuk, but it doesn't have any rationale for why that should be. Ratzir Shchayes in the 19th century gives an extremely modern interpretation. Ratzir Shchayes, in general, was a very modern thinker. He was, he was sometimes accused from his right of being uh, too close to the Maskilim. On the other hand, he was a vehement uh, battler of the Haskalah. He, he fought them tooth and nail on most of what they were doing. But he was he was well read and he was well versed in, in 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 modern modern culture of the 19th century. He argued, he says, that a, a fundamental pillar of modern jurisprudence, particularly capital jurisprudence, he says, is the notion of a defense, someone arguing for the defense. It's a lawyer, he says, a court-assigned lawyer, one of the judges, he says, in European courts, France and England, he brings. His job is to act, to act, as the, to act in the interest of the defendant, he says. It's an essential part of proper jurisprudence to have someone arguing for the defendant. Today we have actual lawyers, whether paid, paid for by the defendant, whether assigned in post-Giddy in the United States, assigned by, by, by the government to uh, argue for the defendant. So the Maritzchaya says, if someone is looking out for the defendant, there's got to be someone who managed to find some reason. Someone has to be clever enough. You know, no legal cases are completely black and white, are, are so one-dimensional, so one-sided, that there is no room to err the other side. If there's someone looking out for the defendant, there should be someone voting for acquittal. If no one is voting for acquittal, there's something wrong with this case. And no, someone is not doing his job of of being the, an advocate for the defendant. He says a similar thing. That's what Chazal meant. He says, it says that the Sanhedrin had to have, that one of their qualities, they had to be such skilled lawyers, essentially, such skilled advocates, they could find 49 arguments for ruling that a Sheretz is pure. A Sheretz is the, the epitome, the symbol of Tumah. Someone was, if someone to be qualified to be on the Sanhedrin had to be able to have 49 arguments that the Sheretz was Tahar. Now, what is this, a joke, he says? This is sophistry. You have to be able to, you know, to, to, to make silly arguments. He says, no, the point is you're going to have defendants. Someone has to present their case. Someone has to be so skilled that they can argue whatever position they have before them, they can find some way of making some kind of credible case for the defendant. That, that's, a crucial, that's a crucial quality that we need for members of the Sanhedrin. Therefore, the Maritzchayas understands that that's what Chazal is telling us, that a unanimous verdict is also not acceptable because that just means something's rigged or someone is not doing due diligence. Others have pushed back. Rabbaruch Epstein, the Tarjmima, feels that this is completely illogical. He says, <laughs> anywhere in halacha, if you, if you have a unanimous, say, Isra Hatter, Kashrus, and you can tell me if you have a unanimous, if post can unanimously agree, is that halacha suspect because nobody's arguing for the other side? I mean, it's true. That, that there are those who have made this kind of uh, Socratic point that, uh, that, that the dialectic and that the way halacha is arrived at properly is through a dialectic. You do need people on both sides. But at the end of the day, we normally assume throughout halacha that a unanimous 
consensus among postgim is stronger than a hotly contested case where you know sixty percent of postgim go one way and forty percent go the other way. But nevertheless, Marzchais's ideas are, are very much in the spirit, certainly that we appreciate from a modern perspective, that it's very important to have someone advocating for the defendant. That the only way he has a prayer of getting his his side properly heard, certainly in capital cases where we, where we go all out to find any reason to to acquit. It's also based on a pasuk we have in this week's parsha in the course of the discussion of the Ritach and the Gol Hadam and the Ermikla, the Torah says, V'shaftu ha'edah, the Eidah shall adjudicate, ben ha'machu ben Gol Hadam, v'tzilu ha'edah, the Eidah shall save him. This is not Pasha Pshad, because I'll have a drasha, v'shaftu ha'edah, v'tzilu ha'edah, that itself, it, that itself is an imperative to have a certain bias in the system toward acquittal, again, with rules, but the point is, there is a very strong imperative in capital cases pushing us toward acquittal, pushing us toward a default of acquittal, making sure that acquittal is, that the chance for an acquittal is given every possibility of, of being realized, and, and therefore, so that, that's what you need. In terms of halacha, though, with that, with, that's what you need. You need a majority, a simple majority of one, of 12, 11 is not sufficient. Since the basin has an odd number, you need a majority of at least three. In terms of degrees of murder, halacha, do, halacha does have, in a certain sense, degrees of murder. There are about a half dozen categories on the spectrum. There's mazid, which yields a death penalty. There's shogeg, which is galos and ermiklat. There's ones, which is uh, not your fault at all. You don't even have to go to the ermiklat. In between are various gradations of, in between mazid and shogeg is a category we call karovl mazid, which is gross negligence, it might be similar to some of the manslaughter cases, categories in law. In between shogig and onus, we have karavla onus, you're not even a full-fledged shogig, but you're not totally blameless here. So the, the rules are a little complicated. In terms of criminal penalties, aside from death penalty and air miklat, there really isn't much. There are some complicated rules of gol hadam, when he has authority to kill, when he doesn't. We're not going to get into the laws of gol hadam today. But basically, in terms of the Formal penalties prescribed by the Torah in the normal system of jurisprudence, we only have two. We only have death penalty for mazid, for uh, intentional murder, for, uh, and we only have ir miklat for a shogi. We will discuss in the duration, in the, in, as we continue, we will discuss a whole bunch of extrajudicial extra remedies or punishments of various sorts uh, that we'll get to soon, but they all have the status of being more or less extrajudicial rather than part of the formal halacha. So the unanimous loophole could allow for a lot of gain. Yes. Right? If there's a clear, absolute evidence that someone did something, you know, somebody might be tempted to, to vote innocent to make sure that they don't get off. Yes. And likewise, if you're the only one who thinks someone is innocent, you might think to vote guilty because there's better odds that they'll get off. That yes. Way. I assume that's not, you're not supposed to do so, that, but yet the system is open to So that. Steve's question, what we call, uh, is, you know, we call strategic voting, is actually, Steve is mechavin to the Archaim HaKadosh. The, the Archaim and Parshas Mishpatim reads this into the Psukim. He reads exactly this question into the Psukim. He says, both those cases, exactly both those situations, if everyone else is ruling guilty, you think innocent, and you know that the only way you can get a result of innocent is by flipping your vote and ruling guilty, or vice versa, if you think he is actually guilty, and everyone else thinks he's guilty, you know the only way you'll secure a guilty verdict, an actual implement punishment, is by voting innocent. The Archaim actually discusses this. His conclusion is, as you intuited, that you should not do that, that you should vote your conscience, so to speak, and let Hashem worry about the outcome. Now, this is very theoretical because we don't do capital, we don't do capital punishment jurisprudence, but there is actually a very practical application of this type of strategic voting, which arises even in ordinary civil cases. 
based on a completely separate halacha, but since you brought it up, the, this is brought by the postkim and the Chuvas farm. These were actual cases that, that came up. The halacha is that an ordinary civil case is decided by a basin of three. A simple majority here works. Two against one works. However, there is an interesting rule that says that if one of the three dayanim says, any adaya, I do not know the answer, even if the other two agree, agree, to, you know, with one of the, agree with the position of one of the litigants, you can't, you can't just rule, even though it's two against, you know, worst case scenario, two against one, you cannot issue a ruling. You're missing like a quorum, so to speak. So the halach is Yosifu Hadayanim. You add on two more Dayanim and they continue to debate. Now, the, the goal of this procedure is to reach some kind of consensus, or, or everyone, should form a, everyone should take a position. If he still says he doesn't know, having five Dayanim is not going to help you because you need, no, you cannot have a verdict of the Basin as long as, as, long as one, at least one dying is saying he doesn't know. So the question arose let's say, variation of your idea, let's say two Dayanim say Ruven is right. You think Shimon is right, but you know as soon as you vote Shimon, you get outvoted, and Ruvain wins. If you say, I don't know, you bring in two more Dayanim. Maybe they'll be able to persuade your, 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 your friends who you can't persuade them. Maybe they'll be able to persuade them that they're wrong, and they'll, they'll change their mind. And the, that's the goal of this procedure, is to reach some kind of either consensus, or at the very least, everyone should form an opinion. So can you deliberately say, any idea, I don't know the answer, in the hope of triggering a, uh, an, an additions to the panel, in the hope of eventually reaching at least a 3-2, if not a 5-0 conclusion, in your, even if you don't persuade them, if, they, if, if you can persuade them in your favor, you'll then say, okay, we, all three of us agree with, uh, with Shimon now, and you'll get the halacha in favor of Shimon. This is, again, actually debated by the postkim. There, there's, that, this is, there's actually debate on this. Postkim go both ways. Some postkim take a compromise view. They say that in an ordinary, legitimate proceeding where everyone is, all the denim are honest and competent, and you have a, and you have a fair and reasonable, honest disagreement, you shouldn't game the system like this. But, but if you know that the other judges are either completely ignorant and unqualified, or certainly if they're corrupt, then this would be a legitimate form of, of uh, judicial maneuvering in order to secure a, a proper verdict. But it's actually a debate. But, uh, but yes, the system is potentially open for gaming, and Allah could trust the day on him to, uh, to be honest about it, basically. To, uh, right. Yes? Um, right, you're referring that, that a Dayan shouldn't say Kablu Daiti, a Dayan shouldn't... So I think what that... I, I, have to, I have to look at the commentaries of that Mishnah. I, didn't, I haven't read it recently. I think what that means is you shouldn't try to impose your, your opinion on them by the force of your personality or your authority. I don't think it means you shouldn't try to debate and persuade by means of argument and by means of... That's what a basin is supposed to do. The, 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 the Talmud always talks about how they're no sieve and no saying that the, the basin is supposed to debate and have and have some kind of discussion. That's what Maritz Chayef. I think everyone agrees that honest, you know, honest, straightforward debate is good. It's only when you try to uh, you know, silence and impose and, and dominate, I think that's where it becomes more of a problem. So as, as we were saying, though, the, we do have a number of these protections, all kinds of protections. Even if we don't go as far as Rebekah and Rebekah, we have all kinds of protections, particularly in criminal case, particularly in capital cases. Many, we have many protections in civil cases too, but many procedural safeguards in civil cases too, but particularly in, criminal, in capital punishment cases, we do have a lot of hurdles and thresholds to cross to meet the Torah standards for, for conviction, which are meant to minimize the application of capital punishment and certainly to forestall it being imposed improperly. One of the famous ones, is the Rambam talks about this at length, is that, we don't, is that we don't allow circumstantial evidence. We require the testimony of two eyewitnesses. Now, we know, we've discussed before, that today 
We criminologists do not really believe that eyewitness is uh, quite as good as they used to think it was. They have, you know, they have all kinds of experiments, social science experiments, that show how unreliable people's reporting is, certainly when they aren't prepared in advance to witness something. And there are all kinds of these clever experiments that show how fallible human recollection is, human uh, selective memory, what you see, what you think you saw, and how you describe it, how you fit it into other you know, things you know in your head. So, but halacha, nevertheless, again, I'm not going to discuss you know, reconciling halacha with uh, modern criminological notions, but halacha certainly, in all areas of halacha, whether it's two adim for marriage and divorce, for criminal cases, for civil cases, halacha always considers two adim, two kosher witnesses, to be the gold standard. Circumstantial evidence is generally lower in, uh, in value than two witnesses. And the normative halacha is we don't generally allow circumstantial evidence, even in a civil case. It does not constitute proof, wherever proof is required. The person trying to get Basin to have, make Basin force the, the, the defendant to turn over money to him usually cannot simply bring circumstantial evidence. But the Rambam makes a really big deal out of this in the context of criminal cases. It's actually one of the Tarek Mitzvahs based on a midrash, the midrash darshans that even someone who is that 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 that, that, you're, that you're not allowed to uh, that, that you're not allowed to rule based on circumstantial evidence, no matter how strong it is. The commentaries ask on the Rambam if even civil cases you can't do that. Why do you need a mitzvah for criminal cases? Some say it's, it's a higher standard, even airtight and perfect circumstantial evidence, which might be enough for civil cases. Doesn't work for criminals. Some say it's just an extra lav, an extra warning to the dying not to act on the basis of even strong circumstantial evidence. But the halacha is, the Rambam emphasizes that we cannot allow any form of circumstantial evidence, anything short of actual eyewitness testimony. The Rambam explains this in terms of a, makes a very explicit explanation that this is because of a slippery slope concern, that yes, the, 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 the highest degree of circumstantial evidence is really satisfactory in principle, but it's a smooth and slippery slope down to the bottom of killing people based on hunches and intuitions and other things that are absolutely not reliable, and once the Torah would open the door to the use of circumstantial evidence, that leads straight down the, the, the dangerous slippery slope of, of all kinds of degrees of circumstantial evidence. And then the Rambam has a, has a classic line which has made its way in, in various versions of it have made, have made their way into Western jurisprudence, that the Rambam says it's true that by having such high standards and such uh, tremendously exacting burdens of proof, we will be allowing various guilty, guilty defendants to walk free. That's a price we're willing to pay. Better that 10 guilty men shall walk free than that we shall execute one innocent man. There is a brilliant and hilarious paper written by a contemporary legal academic called N Guilty Men where he collected dozens of versions of this statement from all kinds of legal codes, from the Rambam to Cotton Mather among the Puritans to uh, Blackstone to jurists in the United States and England and Europe, all of them who gave some version of this aphorism better that N guilty men, and he has all different values of N. That's what the paper explores. Is it 10? Is it 100? Is it 1,000? Is N just a figure of speech? He, and he, he has a, a very witty and very funny paper tracing. The point, the point he's trying to make in a serious vein, I think, is that we all, we all would pay lip service to such a, such a point, but at the end of the day, we recognize that any, any just, just like in medicine, any, any legal system is, is really at bottom all about finding some kind of balance between acceptable false positives, acceptable false negatives. You obviously have to assign some kind of weight to how the price of a false negative is and the price of a false, the, the price of a false positive, and anything you can do to 
you know, to move the whole curve is better, but at some point you have to make decisions given what we have. You have to decide you know, how much is a false negative worth to me and how much is a false positive worth to me and decide you know, what, how much you want to accept. Saying never, you know, never means you should just, like Rukhiba Mitarfan did, just close, close up shop and not practice at all. Insofar as we are actually trying to convict and execute some defendants, then, then and should have some value, at least, at least qualitatively, at least in some sense. Uh, that you do have to, you do have to you set some value of n. And the question is, realistically, what do you do? So the Rambam gives us this clarion call for the importance of making sure that you don't execute innocent people. But at some point, you can, well, eyewitness testimony is sometimes bogus. Also, the Talmud has examples of eyewitnesses, even in capital cases, who were paid, who testified for malicious reasons. The, the Talmud has examples like there were actually innocent men who were killed. The Talmud says because of this. So obviously we have to accept that the system will sometimes kill innocent people. The question is, 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 is any number acceptable? An, an anti-death penalty person might very well say no, that no, no, that no N is acceptable, that, uh, that if even one innocent person is being killed, no matter how many guilty people are walking free, there's no limit. No price is, that's a principle, consistent position. It's not one that Allah accepts in general. So the question is that the that you know, where do you draw the line? So the Rambam is telling us that the reason the Torah has this, this absolute bar against all circumstantial evidence is because the, the slippery slope and the price you have to pay in, uh, in false positives, I guess, is just too high. Better that 10 people should walk than that we should execute even one innocent man. But at the end of the day, so after all these procedural safeguards, the ones we do accept, like this one of the Rambam, the ones we don't accept, like Rabbi Tarfan and Rabbi Kiva, at the end of the day, capital punishment is going to be very rare. Now, again, the Mishnah's numbers are of limited use to us because they tell you in an absolute value how, many, how often they kill people. It's not normalized on any kind of per capita basis or any kind of... We don't have much to compare until you know the size of the Jewish population back then and crime, ra- crime rates back then. It doesn't make so much sense to talk about how many people you're killing unless you know how many people are in the sample size to begin with and how much crime they're committing. Same problem for them when you have the mass incar- incarceration discussion. You talk about how many people are going to jail or are you unfairly targeting one population more than the other. You obviously have to control for other differences in crime rates, obviously, among the two populations you're comparing. So the mission doesn't give us that much useful, you know, actually useful standards that we can apply. On the other hand, the Talmud does tell us that there were various parallel systems that were used to actually impose law and order where the tightly restrictive formal rules of capital punishment were too restrictive. So one of them is the process of kippah. The Mission Sanhedrin says that if somebody would, was a murderer and they didn't have proper evidence, they didn't have the formal two witnesses, either had witnesses, but there were certain technicalities that weren't followed. Talmud has various, various examples of this. They didn't have hasra, proper formal warning, and so on. Basically, to some extent, what we would call technicalities, or alternatively, uh, the certain safeguards uh, were, were blocking us from execu- executing the defendant. The Talmud says it was an indirect form of execution. We wouldn't apply direct formal execution. We kill him ourselves. We have a procedure where we lock him up, and we indirectly cause him to die of, uh, I'm not sure exactly how the process worked, a combination of starvation and malnourishment and different things that would might have even been more painful than actual direct execution, but it was, at least from a legal perspective, from a legalistic perspective, it was indirect, and therefore it was something that we have more latitude to do. Again, we don't have any real, as far as I know, there is no real evidence or sense of how often this was done. The, the later commentaries frequently invoke it as, as, a, as a point in that we cannot always rely on all the formalities of capital jurisprudence 
to maintain order, we have to, we, because the laws are so strict, on the one hand, we have, to, we have to replace them by something else, which will allow us to actually kill more people, which, again, raises the question, so what's the point of having all these principled formalities if we're just going to ignore them and impose other types of techniques that are not burdened by all these formalities? And even, even more extreme is the incredible license given by the Talmud. The Talmud in Yavama says, there's a rule called Makin Va'unshin Shalom Adin that Basin is allowed to act, shalom and adin, extra-legally, extra-judicially, beyond what the law actually says. Basin can basically do whatever it wants if it sees that if the circumstances require it. The Talmud gives two examples. One of them is somebody violated Shabbos, which is actually a capital crime, but this person did not violate one of the 39 malachas. He did an Isr Drabanan, a rabbinic violation. He rode a horse. Riding a horse is not one of the 39 malachas, it's a rabbinic violation. It's a, there's a concern he might pluck a branch to use as a switch to, to goad the horse. Plucking the branch would be a malacha daraisa, but he didn't do that. He simply rode the horse, which is a rabbinic infraction, and they executed him. And that's not the halacha. You don't normally receive, uh, you certainly don't normally receive execution for a rabbinic infraction. They did it because there was a problem. Chil Shabbos was rampant. He had to be taught a lesson, and they, and they had to uh, act accordingly. Another example of someone committed a an act of what we would call today, I think, public indecency. And they didn't kill him this time, but they flogged him, which again, flogging is not normally the prescription for public indecency. They did it because there was a problem and people needed to be taught a lesson. There's actually a whole seminar in Shulchan Aruch, or in the second seminar in Chesh Mishpat, based in Machin Va'unch and Shalom and Adin, that assault, with all the procedural safeguards we're going to learn and all the substantial rules of punishment and how much punishment he's... It's supposed to meet it out. Basin has the authority to simply do whatever it wants insofar as it sees necessary. And obviously this kind of creates a gaping hole in the procedural safeguards of the halakhic legal system. What's to stop Basin from just doing whatever it wants? We have all these rules that are supposed to limit the tie the hands of Basin and make sure innocent men are never killed and that ten guilty men walk and so on. But then, after we take all that away, we give it all back in the form of based in Mach and Vonch and Shalom and Adin. I don't have an answer for that. I don't have an answer for how this works in the real world. However, as we're going to see in the last phase of our discussion, this was relied upon throughout the medieval period into the Renaissance era, into the 16th century. This was relied upon by a variety of poskim who testified, Masim Shahayu, actual cases in Spain, in Poland, in North Africa, where Batidin acted this way. Batidin applied capital punishment or applied other types of, uh, other types of you know, quite savage punishments in, in cases where the basin thought necessary. And, the, and they acknowledge that even though we do not do capital punishment as manazeh, people, people sometimes ask me, you know, as, as a Dayan, as a member of a basin, what kind of cases do you do? I always assure them we do not handle capital cases. I have never, I, I have never been involved in the execution of any miscreants. Um, but there were Batedin that did. There were Batedin throughout the, the history of the Jews in exile. Even though the Talmud explicitly says the Talmud has a clear law, the Raman has a clear law that we do not practice capital punishment as manazesh. Lachan Arach doesn't bring anything down about criminal punishment at all, certainly not capital punishment. Nevertheless, there is a string of chuvos of the actual application of capital punishment. And they, they all follow the same pattern. They all say, our batedin are not formally authorized to impose criminal punishment at all, certainly not capital punishment. Nevertheless, in, uh, under the principle of based in Makin Va'unch and Shalom and Adin, we do have the power to, oppose, to impose a variety of punishments, up to and including the death penalty, 
where in our judgment this is necessary. And again, we should emphasize this is both a substantial override as well as a procedural override. This means we don't follow due process. We, again, our basement is not authorized to do that. doesn't matter. We don't have two proper eyewitness testimony. doesn't matter. And substance too, even if that veyra that was committed is not one the Torah prescribes capital punishment for, as per the case in the Gemara of riding a horse on Shabbos, nevertheless, even if the, the punishment does not fit the crime, if in the eyes of Basin it is necessary, we will do it, and we have done it. Uh, one of the earliest tshuvas is a tshuva of the Rush. The Rush, the Rush moved from Germany to Spain. The Rush saw many things in Spain that uh, quite disturbed him, the, the Jewish community in Spain that quite baffled him. We covered some of them in our Wednesday night show recently, Halachas of Prisbal, Halachas, Aaron showed me a whole discussion about you know, even, even you know, liturgical things, about when to say, when to start and stop saying things like Mashav Haruach and Vesein Talavach Levracha. The Rush saw many things in Spain that puzzled him, and he often exhibits, as we'll see in this tshuva, a kind of, a kind of grudging acceptance as the minhag, but uh, although it kind of didn't sit well with him, one of them was that they practiced, they practiced capital punishment in Spain. Everywhere he's heard, nobody does capital punishment, Jewish communities do not do that, except here in Spain, he says. I was greatly puzzled by this. The Talmud says he can't do that, it's a pretty clear halacha. They told him, the elders in Spain told him, the government authorizes us to do this. And therefore what? So the rush says, I allowed them to follow their minhag, although Lohis Kampim, I didn't agree with them. To, to kill people. However, he says that I see this is the custom here, that you do this. And in the Russia's case, it was not even murder. A lot of the Jews deal with murder. In the Russia's case, it was actually a question of extreme blasphemy. Someone got into some kind of quarrel with the Jewish community, and he engaged in something that was, he said something apparently unspeakable and blasphemous toward God, and the Rush felt he should be severely punished. So the Rush first introduces the general idea that the, that the, that the Minog in Spain was to, because of this, this idea of to avoid to avoid intolerable uh, violations of halacha, he says, that do whatever you want, he says. Migdar Milsa, he brings the Gemara, that they killed the person who rode the horse. He says, we can argue that for Kiddush Hashem, to punish Chil Hashem, we could even destroy this scoundrel. He says, do what you want, he says, do whatever you feel is appropriate. If I was involved, he says, what I would recommend is that we should rip out his tongue, cut off the, the parts of the tongue that are used to speak, and this will uh, render him mute, which is an appropriate punishment for his blasphemy, he says. That's, uh, that's probably a good idea, but you do whatever you want, he says, and I know you're, you mean well, and your kavana is to Mikadeh Shem Shemayim. The Rosh's son, Rabbi Yehuda ben Arash, who was a lesser-known authority, but still a distinguished uh, rabbi in his time, the, the Rabbi Yehuda ben Arash has several tshuvas in his say for Zichron Yehuda, rediscusses capital punishment, and he, he, again, lived in Spain, so he was already used to this. He doesn't express the same reluctance his father does. He just begins by saying, yes, it's true that under Talmudic law we don't impose capital punishment, however, and that it's the job of the Melech, and it's, it's, it's the job of the government. They, they do have to punish that. If not, he says, we, we couldn't survive as a community without this kind of strong medicine, this kind of deterrent toward extreme criminality, he says. And he has one particular case, again, they, they, lived, they lived in a different world. They lived in things that to us would be considered unspeakably barbaric to them were considered normal. The Rush talks about a certain case, uh, the Rita Ben Rush talks about a certain case involving someone who had, I think, committed a murder, had a terrible assault, which resulted in the death of the victim. There were different witnesses testifying to different aspects of the story. So in one of his shuvas, he says, you know, five different possibilities, depending on which, which testimony turns out to be corroborated, which not. Worst case scenario, you kill the defendant. 
Next worst case scenario, cut off both his arms. Third scenario, cut off his right arm. Fourth scenario, cut off his left arm. The fifth scenario, just punish him and beat him severely, but don't actually uh, you know, mutilate him. So this was, and this was, again, I don't know how common this was. You know, people who have written articles and studied this thing have collected the most kind of sensational chuvas like this. You can't bring a raya that this was frequent, certainly, or this was in any way common. But the point is that they did consider this as one arrow in their extrajudicial extra toolkit to impose the most uh, barbaric and even uh, the ultimate punishment, even capital punishment, were necessary. This was something that actually was done, at least occasionally, throughout, uh, through, throughout, throughout the Gullus in uh, throughout the Jewish diaspora. Not throughout, but at least in some countries, we have evidence that this was done. Ramosha Feinstein has an interesting tshuva. He was asked by someone he refers to as the Sar Hamadina, some kind of governmental official. Um, he was asked about the Jewish view on the death penalty. I didn't have a chance to do more research and find out if we, if we know the context of this, who this government uh, officer was, what capacity he held, but Ramosha writes him very respectfully and very politely. The fellow wanted to know, what time is, what time is Mincha? We'll finish up. Wanted to know what is the Jewish attitude toward the death penalty. Ramosha makes pretty much in summary all the points we've said. On the one hand, the Torah does prescribe the death penalty for certain heinous crimes. On the other hand, it is surrounded by protections to limit it. Ramosha makes the somewhat controversial claim that the death penalty was not meant to have a practical deterrent effect. It was so rare and so limited that it did not have necessarily have a deterrent effect. He said deterrence is God's business. We've done our job to run the world. The death penalty is primarily educational, to emphasize society's values, how the Torah's values, and which crimes are so unspeakable that they merit the death penalty. They have more of an educational and, uh, and morally corrective effect than an actual hard-nosed deterrent effect. That's Ramosha's claim. I think you can find many sources in Rishonim and Achronim that don't seem to say that. For example, the Sefer Achinuch says that the, that the reason for the death penalty for murder in particular, he says, is nigla l'kol, is self-evident, melech mishpat yamad eretz, if not for Yiras HaMishpat, if not for fear of punishment, people would just go around killing each other. That's why Hashem said kill murderers. And you can find many sources, I think, other than Ramosha, who did fail that the death penalty was supposed to be corrected. But Ramosha, again, is a kind of modern idea that we're not going to get into the criminological question of whether the death penalty is or is not practically effective as a deterrent. He feels it has a more subtle but a more, uh, a more morally corrective effect through, through education, through through being an articulation of, value, ra- of values rather than a practical deterrent. He goes on like this. He talks about all the safeguards that Torah has. He winds up, though, by conceding that this is all by a crime of passion, not by an inveterate sinner, someone who's going to do it again, someone who's a dyed-in-the-wool, uh, incorrigible sinner. We do have to invoke the notion of Machin Vaunshin, Shalom and Adin. Ramosha leaves something of a middle ground in between, someone who's, uh, he compares a crime of passion on the one hand and someone who's uh, you know, a career criminal on the other hand, doesn't discuss someone who's just uh, has killed once, you know, may do it again, but it's not someone who has completely been parik ol. So there's obviously a large gray area, but Ramosha does concede that the, uh, that the Torah does have a track of Machin Vaunshin, Shalom and Adin.